suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Welcome to this, the 99th episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things, devoted to the subject of Comrade Dolphin, at least for the most part, anyway. If you've listened to any of our our previous past podcasts, you know that other important matters are likely to be brought into the conversation, and I can't help it. And anyway, I always think that these elaborations, asides, adjuncts, uh, tangential stories that I think I think they're important, relevant, and worthy of elaboration. I mean, they I, I find that they always add depth. They value greater to the appreciation of the main subject that is under discussion, at least as far as I am concerned. And this is how I th- see things. Like Stephen Hawking and string theory, everything in life is interconnected. We just don't know how. We just don't know why. And this is where JS and I truly enter the picture because we are trying to help you and ourselves understand just how all this stuff does fit together. Um, Even if at first, understanding is obscured by clouds of vagueness. I mean, really. And this, our 99th episode and the 100th episode that will follow will prove no no exception to these banned standards that we've established. And it is important that color be added to all our stories. And so I feel it necessary as we approach the century mark of our podcast to admit to all who listen here, um, and probably I'm unveiling this truth a tad bit late in the game, so to speak, that our podcast in the past and those that we'll produce in the future have been, have been and will be based upon the principle that the kinetic energy the kinetic energy generated by the story being unraveled, being weaved for the pleasure of the audience listening to this tale, as well as for the enjoyment, of course, of the storyteller himself, me. I, I must add, it this kinetic energy exceeds the need for verifiable veracity of the story itself. Yet two things are undeniable. I believe that whatever we might tell you to be true is in fact true. I promise. And and I think you already know this. Um, so with all this, with all that said, as basketball legend Allen Iverson once so famously inquired of assembled sportscasters, practice. Are we talking practice? 
In the same vein, I rhetorically ask, dolphins? Are we really talking dolphins? And the answer is, well, yeah, we are still talking dolphins for these, the final episodes, the final fish stories, if you will, of Comrade Dolphin, parts four and five of our episodic adventure, whereby dolphins unwittingly become just another addition to the inventory of mankind's numerous weapons of war. Mankind, planet Earth's most industrious, insidious, most ruthless, most lethal and remorseless of all killers. So we ended our last session with mention of relatively recent Russian interest and a willingness to pay $24,000 for each of five dolphins provided only. They were armed with perfect teeth for reasons that are not well understood by Western world governments. But such mystery um, found in in Russian geopolitical move, moves is, is perfectly aligned with the, no, the notorious historical Russian policy of absolute silence with respect to its geopolitical and milica- military intentions. That's just the way the Russians move. Dark, mysterious, unfeeling. These kind of Russian proverbs, by the way, such as the, this you know, admonition that one Russian provides another Russian in, goes like this. Remember, as respects all non-Russians, by the way, remember the tears of strangers are just water. Whoa, this is, this is a message that ex-KGBer Vladimir Putin might easily sink his perfect teeth into. So it is, it is sufficient, therefore, only to say that we can safely conclude that r- the Russian requirement that the dolphins in whom they were interested must wholly satisfy that perfect teeth requirement does not bode well for pacifist interests and provokes only thoughts of something far more insidious or worse for the rest of the world. When it comes to nefarious dolphins, however, there there is precedent for assuming the very worst. So we go back in history to a 1969 book entitled Day of the Dolphin. It was published in the United States. And it is a a story of intrigue, kidnapping, blackmail, violence, whereby... Two dolphins are trained to communicate in English, but ultimately are diabolically um, turned into trained suicide operatives, suicide assassins whose sole imperative, their only objective, is for use in a plot to assassinate the President of the United States by blowing up his presidential yacht. Now, this may seem a bit far-fetched, even as science fiction for most of you. Yet the story had enough meat on its bones to have generated issues sufficient that a film director as highly regarded as Roman Polanski, yes, that Roman Polanski, was in serious negotiations 
with United Artists to direct the film version of Day of the Dolphin, based upon a script that Roman Polanski himself would author. However, while Polanski uh, was in London scouting out film locations in August of 1969 for the film Day of the Dolphin, his pregnant wife, actress Sharon Tate, was butchered along with several other human beings by the worthless homicidal disciples of that little maniacal scum of the earth lifetime loser Charlie Manson in the Polanski's mansion in Beverly Hills. And Polanski returned to the United States after his wife's death, um, but soon informed uh, United Artists that he was going to not direct that film, and and that was abandoned uh, in 1970. Um, in a you know sort of a nasty aside, eight years later, um, on March 10th, 1977, the Oscar award-winning director Roman Polanski arranged to conduct a glamour photo shoot with a 13-year-old girl at the home of actor Jack. Nicholson. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This is not going to end well, and it does not. Polanski provided his 13-year-old model, I mean this 13-year-old girl, with champagne and qualudes, ostensibly for the purposes of taking the edge off of her, um, uh, you know, taking the edge off his, his nearly prepubescent 13-year-old model to calm her down for the photo shoot. Yeah, sure. Well, that's what, his, that, that, that's what his claim was. That's what his intentions were. You know, earlier in life, when I was 22 years old, I taught at Cook County Jail in Chicago for, for nearly two years while I was getting my MBA at the University of Chicago. And, and there were six rapists among my 27 students six rapists, and they told me over the course of that two years the strangest of stories whenever attempting to explain how they raped young women. Well, in any event, Polanski, after providing the 13-year-old with champagne and quaaludes, he then forced his young 13-year-old model to engage in anal sex. And I, I am certain that this acquired taste was not something the 13-year-old had in her palate at that particular time in her life. The distraught 13-year-old then informed her mom of the horrors that had just taken place at the Nicholson residence, and she called the police. And a police investigation that followed um, uh, resulted in... in in Roman Polanski's finding himself in a very, very delicate and very serious legal situation uh, in, in L.A. indeed. And explaining his way out of trouble, trying to justify a number of his ill-conceived um, criminal actions that horrible night looked to be between slim and none. Jail time in American prisons, as we all know, for child molesters and child rapists is, as, as Tina Turner used to sing in her sexiest voice, it's never going to go down easy. 
Roman Polanski was in a world of hurt, and he knew it, and he would do anything to avoid prison time. Criminal charges were filed against the 5'3", 130-pound little foreign film director. <laughs> oh, how bad prison had to appear to be for Polanski, that child rapist who would be locked in a cage with those weightlifting, violent, sex-starved meatballs that were going to be in there with him in whatever prison he would go to. God, Polanski... He must have been terrified, and he should have been terrified, because now he was going to find out exactly how it felt to be the unwilling behind on the receiving end of the sexual preferences that he apparently so enjoyed. Polanski pleaded guilty to the crime of sex with an underage minor. Then he did a runner, and he escaped U.S. jurisdiction. And for 40 years now, Polanski has skirted U.S. law. Well, you know, this is a complete aside from Day of the Dolphin, but you can see how it's connected. But let, me, but let me ask you some questions. Not about Polanski. What was this girl's, what this 13-year-old girl's mom doing allowing her kid to be alone in the presence of a grown man, a film director, at night, on a Thursday during the school year. Are you kidding me? What? Did did her daughter tell her mom, hey, I'm going over to Jack Nicholson's house. He, by the way, he's not going to be there. He's out of town. But mom, I'm going to be with Roman Polanski, who's going to be taking some glamour shots of me. I'll, I, I'll give you a ring later. What? Or did, or, or did this 13-year-old regularly Go out on school nights. I'll see you later, Mom. I mean, what kind of mom was this woman? My God. I'm not in any way defending Polanski, and, and I'm not questioning the girl was a victim. I'm saying, what the hell was the mother doing during all this time? I mean, come on. So back to the Day of the Dolphin, the film that Polanski decided to take a pass on. In 1973, four years after Polanski turned down that offer to direct Day of the Dolphin, United Artists, in in what turns out to be a very, very wise business move, sold the film rights to Day of the Dolphin to a consortium whom asked um, Mike Nichols to direct Day of the Dolphin in its new version in the film project. Nichols, Mike Nichols said yes, but he ought to have said no. For it proved a loser at the box office, a film that that did nothing to enhance the reputation of an Academy Award-winning film director, Mike Nichols, a fellow alum, by the way, of mine from the University of Chicago, whose, whose portfolio of awesome films included... Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, uh, The Graduate, Carnal Knowledge, uh, Working Girl, The Birdcage. I mean, just to name a few. I mean, just what lured Nichols to do this film? What, What he might have found so attractive about Day of the Dolphin remains a mystery. And his misery, Nichols' misery, was only worsened when he decided to extend an offer to George C. Scott, yeah, Patton, to take on the leading role for which Scott was paid $750,000, a lot of money back in 1970. And Nichols later described it as the toughest shoot he had ever done to date. 
ever. The production was literally underwater from moment one of day one when George C. Scott didn't show up. He didn't appear as he was contractually required to do for the first three days of scheduled shooting, claiming later an undefined virus had taken its toll on him. I mean, the ego of these movie stars is just unbelievable. These prima donnas. So when ultimately released, the, the movie sunk to the depths, you know, faster than even a diving dolphin might ever, which is really saying something. So now we, re, now, now we return to those dolphins with the perfect teeth, sought by the Russians at 24,000 hours a crack. It's impossible to know exactly what the plans were. What did the Russians have in store? for such recruits. But if they were looking to train those dolphins with the perfect teeth to kill, they are probably still, even today in 2022, um, they still remain disappointed. Because dolphins don't prove to be natural-born killers of, you know, of the variety that was on display in, in the 1994 um, movie of the same name directed by Oliver Stone. No, no, dolphins are not natural-born killers. Be, by the way, beyond their ramming capacity, which can be deadly given the force, you know, an example of the, you know, at force equal mv squared, um, where speed indeed can kill. Um, think of, you know, to put this in perspective, think of those bone-crushing, teeth-rattling, Big hits you've seen courtesy of, you know, NFL films where an NFL player weighing maybe maybe 220 pounds or, or so and, and running at 16, 17 miles an hour just crushes a ball carrier. I mean, it, it makes me cringe when I see some of these hits. And, and I, you know, in fact, I still remember, in fact, no matter what, you know, a la electric light orchestra song from like 1970. I can't get it out of my head. No, I can't get it out of my head. The hits dished out by these football players on each other are just terrible. And I still remember the hit some linebacker put on um, an unsuspecting, inexperienced, former track star turned potential NFL wide receiver, receiver Ronaldo Nehemiah. I have never seen anything like it. As he cut across the middle of the field to catch a pass thrown by a, another alum when I went to Notre Dame as an undergrad, by Hall of Fame quarterback Joe Montana on a pass route that you know for the San Francisco 49ers, someone laid a hit on Nehemiah who was unconscious before he even hit the ground. The force was just unreal. And that that hit resembled more closely a car wreck than it did a football tackle. And this was 40 years ago, I think. I mean, the closest thing to it, by the way, maybe even worse, was the hit that Philadelphia Eagles linebacker Chuck Bednarik, a real hard, tough guy, he laid he laid on New York Giants poster boy, golden boy running back Frank Gifford in 19, 
1960. I mean, it was completely devastating. And if you Google it, just put the hit, it'll bring up Benaric's hit on Frank Gifford, um, who was so concussed, so severely concussed, he would not play in another NFL games for two years. I mean, the guy missed us, you know, that the remainder of that season after that hit and all of the next season. Oh, my God. Now think, now think about this. Having discussed NFL hits, well, now one can imagine, only imagine, the trauma that might be imposed should a 330-pound dolphin racing at 30 to 35 miles per hour would hit a man square in the chest. I mean, it's going to leave a mark. It, it's probably going to stop your heart. It's going to crush your rib cage, and it quite may quite likely kill you. Hence, hence, you can see the interest the murderous little poisoner Tsar Putin might have in the potential lethality posed by a trained killer dolphin taking orders like like Putin used to take orders when he was a KGB agent. You know, must get moose and squirrel, Boris Badenov. So for a man as paranoid as Putin, who lusts for power, one should not give up easily, and he wouldn't, on a project that might ease both his fears, because he was such a paranoid guy, and enhance his powers. Sea mammals, Putin thought, have potential. We will keep working with those dolphins because we must get moose and squirrel. And so we end episode 99 of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. And we will conclude our episodic adventure of dolphins, comrade dolphin, day of the dolphin, in our 100th episode to follow. Hope you've enjoyed. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Sad game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Time can't be returned Misguided and all of my own At least that's what I thought I failed to see that I believed Back in my past.
I can tell that I've broken the heart Can she forgive me? Can she forget? Can she keep us from falling apart? I hope that she knows that I'm in the know. 